As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We asked, you responded, and now hopefully, Drancer, we can deliver answers to the incredible array of questions we received for this mailbag edition of the VanCast. Yeah, 150-ish responses from the <laughs> VIP, no VIPs, no big deal. Uh, well done. Thank you, everybody. And, you know, so yeah, we've, got a, we've got a Santa-sized mailbag, right? Like, this is a satchel, you know, filled to the brim with burning questions. Why are questions always burning or, or big? <laughs> I've always wanted to know this. This is my personal mailbag question. Because they're for you, straight, straight fire. Straight are, fire. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, hey, bef- before we before we reach deep into that mailbag, though, we had lunch the other day. We did, and like a social outing. Help me if I'm wrong here, but the first time since early in summer training camp, when you and Farhan and myself gathered after one of the sessions at Rogers Arena, I uh, went to Yale Town, had some beers. And it's been that long. Obviously, I know. you and I have talked, we've texted, we've done the podcast twice a week. We've been in communication, but we hadn't been face-to-face since early July. So long overdue, and yeah. full credit to you, because the, the plan originally was to have lunch sometime midweek. And you went, no, we're doing it Monday when the sun was shining, and we sat outdoors in early November in short sleeves. Yeah. Like, it was an incredible day. And a great lunch. So good. It was actually you. You right hot. Call. It was actually it hot. Was. Like it was warm. It was amazing. And uh, yeah, good sandwiches and, and shouts to Andrew, who we walked into the store and immediately wanted a selfie with us. Uh, that was that was hilarious. Uh, but look, good to catch up. Good to good to fill my notebook with some podcast ideas. Some things. Some things that I think our listeners will uh, will pay off for our listeners. We're disgusted at that lunch, um, and always great to see. You. It sucks that we've gone that long. Um, between between meals together, my friend. Lunch, by the way, like we should have just had the recording device on the table because that in itself could have been a podcast mm-hmm. with the amount of ideas that went back and forth. But but just to your point with Andrew, uh, and it was great to and I mean, like we just happened. He was I think grabbing a coffee in the same place we were. Uh, he snapped the selfie, 
and then he made a Naslin Linden joke when he posted the pic to Twitter. So good, so good. I also, I also loved that he was like, "My dad's a big fan of yours, Jay Patton. He's neutral on you. He's neutral on you, Drancer. Um, you know, it's a generational thing. That's how I, that's how I cried myself to sleep later that night. But, uh, but no, look, it was great to see you, and uh, and and that place was good, man. Like that was a good sandwich and and a nice time. And again, I think we brainstormed some excellent stuff. Uh, that'll pay off for for the VIPs and the VanCast listeners in the month or two to come before hockey returns. All right, and and so lunch essentially though was a prelude to walking across the street to the little mom and pop grocery <laughs> store, right? To have Drance finally, finally pay off that damn bubblegum bet that dates back to training camp in Victoria, essentially fourteen months ago. Uh, when you rounded the corner, one of your first days on the job for the athletic, and had the nerve to ask for three, three sticks of gum. Like, it bothered me then. It still eats at me now that you would ask for three sticks of gum. But you did. And from that, the Tim Schaller bet was born. And C- Cody Sievertson, who went through the Watchroom Project, he reached out on IG when I posted the picture of you at the till paying for the gum. And he wondered if you immediately asked if you could borrow a stick just to start the cycle again. <laughs> oh, I should have. Damn. Uh, Cody. Cody with the big pull. The idea that we didn't have at lunch. No, uh, I didn't. But I still think that's perfectly reasonable because training camp days are long, right? Like, they're long and there's a lot of one-on-ones, right? Like, I, I probably – at those training camp days, I probably did, like, 10 one-on-ones every day. And I, you know, I, I've worked in PR. I'm telling you, bad breath is like the number one complaint that players have about media members, right? Like by far. And you know, the so I wanted to have gum. I knew it was going to be a long day, and and I figured, look, I'm a guy who always has gum. I just figured you'd get it back over the course of the year. I didn't, I didn't mean for it to be a thing. But you, just you know, came charging, charging out of the gates yeah. with the three stick ass. Uh, I had some people ripping me for my selection because it was wide open. The bet was that you were going to buy whatever I wanted. Uh, I went for a Trident Spearmint. I went for the Super Pack, though. I got 14 sticks out of it. Yeah, it's so delightful. I think I did, I th- I think I did okay. Yeah, so All you right, have three to so... spare. You have three to spare, j <laughs> Yeah, well, when I see you again in three months' time. <laughs> yeah, sounds uh, good. All right, let's get into it because the VIPs had questions. Hopefully, we get some answers. Uh, you talk about your time in PR. Let's get right into this one, then. We'll start with Gordon D., who, and look, it flows out of our last podcast. Elias Pedersen went on Chicklets. We talked about that. Uh, Gordon asks, and this is a question for you, Drancer. I see when you were the Panthers VP of Communications, both Matt Caldwell, the CEO, and Keith Yandel were guests on Chicklets. For those instances, did Spittin' Chicklets come to you first in your role as the head of communications and ask you to set those interviews up? Or if it wasn't run through you, once, once hearing about it, did you think it was a mistake and try to stop them from going on the pod? So the answer is no, it didn't go through me. Keith Yandel is, you know, old friends with uh, Ryan Whitney. I think, I think they, I think they shared like a junior coach and, and obviously are both from the Boston area and um, Caldwell. They also got at directly. I think I helped prep him. So no, I didn't shut it down. Um, in fact, I just tried to make sure that Caldwell would show well on the pod um, you know, that's a good opportunity for a, a president CEO like Caldwell is right. I, I from from my perspective, I, I mean, I think it's a high leverage spot 
to go into as an exec. I mean, think about Trent Carroll, right? That's the equivalent. Like Trent Carroll on Spit and Chicklets. Like that's a level of exposure you don't usually get for a non-hockey team executive. And so, you know, I thought that was an interesting opportunity back in the day. And Yandel obviously is like key to Spitting Chicklets lore with, I mean, he's the originator of Sonk and on and on. So, uh, no, I didn't try to shut it down. There were other asks that did go through me from Spitting Chicklets. Um, including for, you know, various coaches and, and on and on that I had recommended against internally, just in that, you know, I thought for, I mean, again, for me in, in my role as a, a PR guy and in my role as a PR guy for a team that doesn't get much attention, right? I was just trying to think about what helps us break through and, you know, because Chicklets was such a hockey, is such a like hockey obsessives medium, Right. Like it's it's a targeted at big hockey fans. And for me, my area of bigger growth in South Florida would like, you know, it was probably more valuable for me to get on like a cooking show on like Good Morning Miami or whatever (laughs) than it was to get on Chicklets. And and I and I always thought the risk was pretty high. Right. Like I thought the risk was pretty high just because of the environment that you go into, you know, like guys like Yandel who are old buddies with them, they're, they're treated with a certain like you know, a different type of respect, but I also think that the environment is so open and free flowing. And I did at the time think there was downside for, for like a coach, you know, or like a, a Chris Pronger type, uh, someone with gravitas to go on it just because of the, now look, they've done coaches and GMs before. I know they've had Stan Bowman and on and on. Like, I, I think I'm not saying that they can't do it. I think they're great interviewers, but I think there is risk for the subjects involved just because I do think of the, you know, tenor of the conversation tends to be very casual, a little bit edgy. And I do remember sort of making some recommendations against people going on, but it wasn't based on, you know, um, my sort of any concerns that I had about, you know, m- misogyny, um, you know, on the, on the podcast or what have you, it was just about a a risk assessment straight up like I do for anyone else, uh, based on tenor subject matter, um, and whether or not I thought the benefits were significant enough to warrant that risk. And, you know, in some cases, I I mean, I, I thought they were, and in some cases I thought they weren't, and that's sort of how I evaluated it. This morning on Good Morning Miami, cooking with canned fish. That's my sense. Right. All right. Yes. What all right, what have you got? Hit me with another question. All right. The, I loved, there were a lot of questions about prospects, but I, I want to save those. The, um, <laughs> the one I, I, I mean, I liked all the gum questions too, right? <laughs> did, did Drance pay up on the gum wager yet? Yes. And you're, you're going to tweet that photo, right? Uh, the trophy case? <laughs> yeah. I put it on IG. So yeah, but you got to throw you got to throw it on Twitter, man. All right. For the VIPs. All right. What are your favorite moments? This is from Sean N. What are your favorite moments from this past season and what will be the biggest surprise coming out of training camp? Greetings from Holland and thanks for the great content. Thank you, Sean. We appreciate you listening from the Netherlands. Love it. You know, look, the games are great. I love the games, and we saw lots of them. I saw 69 of them up until the halt. You saw the ones in the bubble. I wasn't nice. there for those. But it, it's, when you ask about moments, like it, my mind wanders to the incredible things that we did out on the road, Pecan Lodge. We've talked about that. The, yeah, the, 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 the Flintstone size. Yeah. 
slice of meat. <laughs> axe throwing in Nashville. Like, right. You know, the, my introduction to axe throwing and the people that we met, the, the roadies from the band that we threw axe with. was Like, it was incredible. So, um, you know, Philadelphia got to the Seahawks game against the Eagles. Uh, you and, I mean, I, going to Yankee Stadium on a Friday night to see playoff baseball. Like, come on. Like, it, yeah. So, you know, that's where... You know, our, our chase for pizza, Prince's Pizza, after the baseball game, going to Parm. <laughs> we we took IMAC to Parm, right? Like there, <laughs> there were so many. So for me, the experience, like, if you're asking me about a game, it's funny, and I think we did talk about this, but you know, a game in Carolina on Super Bowl Sunday, Canucks mm-hmm. lost four three in a shootout, but it was an incredible game. Like it was hockey the way I want to see it played. It was just back and forth. Pedersen, Svechnikov, Aho, like these stars were on and they were dialing that day. And it was it was just an incredible hockey game, I thought. So, you know, it's probably not one that people would think fans, I'm sure, look at 9-3 over Boston or, you know, some of those Canuck wins along the way. But uh, I still, for just when when you watch all these games as closely as we do, it's funny that one on a Sunday afternoon on Super Bowl Sunday in Carolina uh, stuck with me because I just thought it was an incredible hockey game. It was an incredible hockey game. That was that was awesome. And and right toward the end of the season, too, in terms of what actually got played. Um, you know, I, th- I think you're right. I think for me, I, I just throw in Sedin Week as like a week that I'll always yeah. sort of look back yeah. on really fondly. Uh, there was just so much going on. And, you know, hockey news, uh, legacy news, the club knocked it out of the park. Like, you know, Bettman's there. I mean, it was just such a fun week. And I think back on that, and that too was only like three weeks before, you know, those kinds of social situations were essentially like, you know, ripped from us. And I just think like, man, like, I wonder if I'll ever have as much fun covering hockey as I did that week. That week was tremendous. Yeah, Burroughs' Ring of Honor, BX's speech, uh, any night Quinn Hughes was playing. Like, I mean, there were just, there were so many moments. So uh, thanks for the question, and hopefully uh, we provided a decent answer there. Spencer P., lots of talk recently about Travis Green's contract extension. Wondering about the process. Do most, most coaches have an agent? I know coaches' contracts allow for a lot more creativity than player contracts. What do negotiations look like between a team and a coach? Well, so from a team side, the one thing is when you're searching for a coach as opposed to negotiating an extension, everyone you talk to leaks that they're in consideration. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, we were also uh, on the other side of hiring Bob Bugner. When we were hiring Bob Bugner, um, we we requested to talk to Travis Green uh, back then, like at the time, and uh, and that permission was declined. And the reports in Vancouver were like, no, no one's requested. Like, the, it was all a leverage play in Vancouver. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was, like, yeah. watching this media market uh, as the these facts unfolded. And I was like, oh, man, this is hilarious. Uh, but the um, – yeah, so th- I haven't negotiated <laughs> on behalf of an NHL team for a coach. <laughs> Lots of coaches do have agents. And here's an interesting wrinkle. Um, a agent – like a player agent cannot represent a coach or a manager, right? Like, like that is, you know, NHLPA constitution, uh, a player agent cannot also represent management. So there are right. distinct so they are pl- player agents for a reason, right? Like that's the right. title. 
players. Yes, they are. They are player advocates. Period, and they can't have that you know conflict of interest that results from also representing management. And on the other on the other hand, though, uh, most coaches do have agents. There's a couple of big ones, like a, a couple of guys who have a lot of clients. I don't know who Travis Green's agent is. I think he's a Newport guy, but I don't know who at Newport represents like executive and coaching talents. So, um, but yeah, I mean the process for these things typically like I would have expected in a normal world that a green extension would have been done quickly. Uh, now I, we all know it's going to take some time. I still think it would behoove the Canucks to get it done quickly. Also because then you can move on to locking up his assistants, including Ian Clark. Um, but you know the money crunch. I, I, I I'm I won't be surprised if we start to hear that you know the Canucks are pushing to limit the term and and limit the money too, and are looking at trying to do something shorter term, like almost like a bridge to a better world type deal with their head coach, uh, while the head coach just wants to get what he's probably earned based on a remarkable first three years of coaching an NHL team, and so. So it goes. I mean, it'll be interesting to watch this play out. But in terms of the process, uh, I would I would think that, you know, if he has an agent, it would be conversations between the agent and the general manager. Uh, ownership, obviously, generally involved in, in okaying a coaching salary, especially because it is independent of the cap and because the variation in salary is so high, um, you know, you go from the $1 million coaches to the $7 million coaches, like ownership's going to be involved in that type of a commitment period, no matter what organization you are. And then of course, you know, different teams have different negotiators and people who drop the contracts and, and those people get involved as well, uh, especially as it gets down to brass tacks. Right. And just further to that, I mean, you think about it uh, in a pool of 700 players it's a lot easier to come up with comparables. There are, I mean, Travis Green has 30 peers that have NHL head coaching jobs right now, all at various states of their careers, various states of uh, degrees of success. Like it is difficult, I think, or harder to come up with comparables uh, for a coach just because of the limited field that's out there. And also, as you point out, like really to me, this is a, a negotiation with ownership because Jim Benning doesn't, he's not handicapped in any way by the salary cap or handcuffed by the salary cap here. Like, so if Jim Benning felt that Travis Green was worth four million bucks a year, he'd have to run that by ownership. It would be ownership's call at that point. So, you know, I, I do think that Jim Benning and Chris Gear probably are part of the negotiating team on the part of the organization, but they're also, you know, Travis Green's colleagues. And so it's a little murkier in that sense. But ultimately, I think it it probably has, you know, it, it's going to be ownership that decides how much it wants to spend on non-salary uh, cap related items in terms of the payroll. So, you know, to yeah. the points that you made, well, we'll see where it goes. But I, <laughs> I think it's it's the kind of contract that ultimately winds up on ownership's desk. Yeah, for sure. And we already know that even when it comes to salary cap expenditure, right, that they're not super excited about shelling out for the 2020-21 season. Now, a green extension wouldn't kick in until after that anyway. Um, that and, and, of course, the Wild West, the ability to use ratchets and on and on, I, I think will be a key way uh, to bridge the gap, especially amid the economic uncertainty. All right, from, from Aleem K., it seems the reason that the Canucks look directionless right now is because they didn't expect Hughes and Petey to accelerate them to a point where they could be in their window as quick as they did. 
Do you think the Canucks are sticking to a plan where maybe two years from now they will be in their actual window? And are you okay with playing this upcoming season with what they have? Uh, that gets kicked around an awful lot that Petey and Hughes have accelerated you know, the growth of the hockey team. And I, I think that there is an element of truth to that. You know, now, does it put them ahead of where management thought they were going to be? Like, it still doesn't excuse giving Jay Beagle what they gave Jay Beagle or Antoine Roussel. Like, those are bad contracts, and people thought so at the time, and, and I think we're seeing that now. Louis Erickson, Tyler Myers, on and on it goes. But, you know, I, I'm never in favor of throwing a season. Like, when I think of what Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes mean to this hockey club, like I, I want those guys to be surrounded with better players so that they can continue to grow and the team can grow. And yet when I look at what they've got, like I still expect that those two players will get better uh, this coming season, but it just, it feels like they are handcuffed by a supporting cast that just isn't able to give them what they need to move this team forward. So, you know, I, I still think it's going to be a grind these next couple of seasons until they get out from under all those big contracts. And then uh, maybe we'll see them sort of on this accelerated path to true contention. But, you know, I, I think this is going to be a tough year. It's going to be a short year. Maybe that's a good thing that, you know, it's not going to be a, an 82-game grind, however many games they end up playing. But, I don't want to say they're going to punt on the season. I just think that they're going to be up against it because they really haven't done much in the way of uh, improving the hockey club. Yeah, for me, if you buy that there was no possible way to anticipate that a team that had that was going to be at the bottom of the league in four or five years was going to go into the lottery with really good odds, four or five years, um, that that team might, out of the picks that they net from all that pain, mine some elite talent that's ready to compete pretty quickly, like then you're probably in the market to buy an escalator to nowhere, a giant magnifying glass for the downtown core, or a monorail, the kind that put North Haverbrook on the map. Like it is a complete, it is, it is absolute bullshit. Like there is no way that that is a serviceable, a serviceable justification for the Canucks' cap woes. Like the Canucks signed players they valued, those players haven't contributed as much as they would like. There's no, oh, the grand plan foiled by the fact that young players picked at the top of the draft are really good. Like, screw off with that. I have no time for that. Like, Pedersen and Hughes were great picks. Home run picks. You don't expect to get contributors like that at 5 and 7, for sure. But the Canucks... It, like the Canucks only picked five and seven because of historic, unprecedented bad draft lottery luck, right? Like it was not outside the realm of possibility that in one of those four drafts, like including the Olevi and the Vertanen draft, that they would have picked in the top three. Like you have to budget and forecast as if you're going to get difference makers right away. And the idea that the idea that, oh boy, if only their picks weren't so good, they'd be prepared. Like, no, <laughs> fuck that. You have to forecast and prepare for, like, outside of, like, the most probable scenario unfolding. Like, that's the fucking job. Like, no. No fucking chance. That's a ridiculous excuse. It is gaslighting. If you are preaching that, you are gaslighting the Vancouver market. It's unacceptable. Like, it's an unacceptable line. If it's true, it's unacceptable. It's, it's actually even more unacceptable if it's real. But you should be embarrassed 
to be making that type of argument in public because it's gaslighting the market, lowering the bar, and pretending as if reasonable concepts of hockey management, like reasonable expectations for what teams and management teams should prepare for when they're rebuilding, do not apply if that team is good at drafting. And that does not pass any elementary sniff test. It's just bullshit. I feel like you need a soothing piece of spearmint gum just to... Uh, <laughs> you sit tight, because I'm going to get two questions in here. Uh, All the right. first, one's, first one's from Josh M. Will you answer my question, or is it too far down the list? We will answer it, Josh, and I know that okay. you had another actual question right after. I also picked this one. I'm glad you went to it. Josh M., we will answer your damn question. What is it? No, I, that was the only one I had from Josh <laughs> I'm M. Sorry. If you, Wait, I want to be nice to Josh M. I should have been nicer to Josh M. I'm just like fired up, and he got my like, he got my like, uh, <laughs> um, my, what's, what's it called uh, when there's like casualties? Um, anyway, he got my blow off, my rebound anger. No, but Josh M. asked another question immediately after. So I think we should answer it because. I want to show Josh M. Okay, he also asked, what Utica slash prospects is making this team in your eyes? Um, I think we should actually handle his real question in addition to his Joe question. All right, fair enough. Uh, I, I think you levy. To me, they've sort of penciled him in on that third pairing on the left side. So, you know, I think there's going to be battles. I think guys will be given some opportunities whenever a camp rolls around here. But as far as players that weren't on this team when COVID hit, and I know Olevi made his debut in the bubble, uh, I just, to me, I think Olevi, there's a spot there for him to lose. Like, I think Jack Rathbone, who's never played a professional game, would have to come to camp and blow the doors off. And and maybe he will, but I think Olevi's got a spot there to lose on the, the left side of the defense. I am with you. It's Olevi with a bullet, although I'm still interested about... Jalen Chatfield, especially with how on the tip of the tongue he yeah. has been for Canucks management, as you so astutely pointed out back in early October, uh, I'm, I'm watching for him too. All right, from Liam K. As long as I've been a fan, I've heard about how Vancouver is a tough market to play in. Do you guys think Vancouver is any harder of a market than any other Canadian cities? And how do the players really feel about that pressure? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a tough market. For sure. Like, I for sure think it's a tough market. Um, I think there are positives and negatives to it. Like, the positives are if you have a Tyler Mott-type playoffs, you are a hero, right? Like, an absolute hero. Like, a podcast is making merch with your name on it. And, you know, like, there are opportunities that come around to you that don't exist if you're, you know, a Tyler Mott-type contributor who has a good playoff in Carolina, right? Um, but there are pressures, and I think there's pressures on a lot of people. Like, I think there's definitely a ton of pressure on management here, right? Like, you think about think about how plugged in Rick Dollywall is, right? Like, think about how plugged in Rick Dollywall is and how the market reacts to every bit of news that he shares. Like, can you think of another analog in another hockey market where there's, like, a career radio guy with those kind of industry contacts whose reports are you know, discussed with that level of sort of attention and fervor in the, like there's, there isn't like that doesn't exist elsewhere. Right. Like (laughs) it's, it's crazy in terms of the like national sources, league sources, the quality of the reporting, how competitive it is here. Um, You know, and, and I do think, and look, I think the Vancouver media pool makes sure to ask tough questions. Like I think players know 
when they play here that they're going to have to face the music after giveaways and and certain things and that they're the volume of that is going to be higher than it is elsewhere um and i and i do think like you you hear guys like Ali and Vigneault and former players talk like they do talk about how if the Canucks were on like a big losing streak right it, it became unpleasant to be around town right there, there's the story about Lucas Pisa going to the restaurant right <laughs> do you remember this the David Ebner story uh Lucas Pisa told David Ebner about a time he went to a restaurant to get a reservation um, and the, and he like overheard the hostess be like, yeah, it's that Canucks player who sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there was going to be a, I thought there was going to be a pizza punchline in there somewhere, but <laughs> no. So, I mean, look, I think that, I think that exists, uh, for sure in this market, um, for sure. And I think it is tough, but I also think there's upside to it. And, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna win here, like, man, it would be something like, it would really be something to win here. Um, and, and for me, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I know a lot of guys don't want that pressure. They just want to play the game. Um, I, you know, I, I think that's kind of ridiculous. Like you get paid to play the game because people care, you know, you should care about making sure people want to pay to watch the games like that for me. I don't understand wanting to be the best at something and not wanting to do it on the biggest stage or one of the biggest stages that will never square with my worldview. I will never really be able to empathize with it. Um, so, you know, I think it is tough, but I also think the people are like the media, same media, no cup. That's why the players don't want to play here. It's like, look, if you don't want to play here because there's too much attention on you being good or not, like whatever, you know, that's that you do you, but this is the show and uh, I don't see not wanting to be involved. Montreal Canadiens are pretty heavily covered in two languages. It seems to me that yep. over the years, not recently maybe, but over the years they've had some success. And, and my counter to that is always the Yankees, right? Like no team in a market in North America is covered like the Yankees, has the reputation of the Yankees. And yet it seems every player in baseball at some point in their career wants to be a Yankee and the Yankees have success. Dallas Cowboys, maybe not right now, but the Dallas Cowboys, you know, in a market like that, uh, they've had success. So, you know, media coverage just reflects the interest, I think, in a marketplace. And yeah, if you come to a Van Vancouver, you come to any Canadian city, you know that the team's going to be covered. But I, I do think that, as you point out, you know, right now, most of the anger, if that's the right word, is directed at management. Like, I, I, you know, even when the Canucks were bad, like when they went through those five years where they weren't winning, and Botch and I pointed this out repeatedly, like when you think of the product on the ice versus the uh, positive nature of the coverage of, you know, a Troy Stetcher working his way up through the ranks, and then all of a sudden Brock Besser arrives on the scene, and Bo Horvat, and, you know, obviously Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, like, there were so many good stories. Like, people just wanted this team to be good, and they latched on to the positive stories. It, you know, and it wasn't the young guys ever that dragged this team down. It was uh, the guys on the fringes. It was coaching at times. And so, you know, I, I don't know. Like, to me, it, it that question gets brought up an awful lot about, you know, the coverage compared to the success on the ice. Uh, ultimately, good players are going to play through and hopefully find a way to deliver a result. And I think, I mean, everybody wants to see that. Everybody wants to see the Canucks ultimately bring a Stanley cup to Vancouver for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, 
I, anyway, I, I have weird opinions on this, I think. I, I just don't have a ton of empathy for the professional athlete who's like, I just want to play the game. It's like, well, fuck, your game is an entertainment product. Like, you should want to be invested in growing that. For me, I mean, that's the actual job. And, you know, the uh, the idea, like, I don't know. Maybe this is the old PR guy in me where it's like, <laughs> just, you got to be part of the show, man. You like, you, you think LeBron, you think LeBron just wants to play the game? Like, you, th- you know, you think the guys who really resonate in, in, in sports, like globally, like Messi and on and on, like, you think they're just coming in and then they're like, oh, media, like, oh, fuck. Oh, I just want to go about <laughs> playing. Like, fuck off, man. Like, you're, you're an entertainer. First and foremost, you're an entertainer. And I don't know why that ethos doesn't exist at all in hockey, but it doesn't. And, you know, cutting excuses like, man, there's too much attention in that market. Like, fuck, that's that's a good thing. That's a good thing for everybody. Um, it helps keep the league strong. I've got another one that follows out of this on the topic of media. So if okay. I can, I'll, I'll, from Jeff B., uh, it's bothered me over his time as a Canuck that I honestly can't even picture what little things Louis' voice sounds like. He seems to do very little in the way of pregame, intermission, postgame interviews. I'm sure he's been in no great rush to seek out attention based on his production over his time here. But in his quiet moments, does he engage with the media at all? Does he bristle at questions around his time here or his future with the club? He's as big a ghost in this market off the ice as he is on it. I'm curious what, if any, of his lack of success here plays into that. Louis doesn't get a lot of attention because Louis <laughs> no. hasn't warranted a lot of attention. But to his credit, like he has stood in there yeah. on rare occasions and been asked probably tougher questions than anybody. Like we just talked about tough questions. And I go back to, you know, most of the questions are, Peter, you know, PD or, or Hugh, like, you know, how are you so incredible, right? Like, I mean, they're along that line with Louis. It's, it's like you haven't lived up to your contract. Aren't you going to play out your contract? Like he has been hit with some tough questions and I will give him credit that he has stood in there. He's a quiet guy by nature. He certainly isn't flamboyant. He's not seeking out the limelight in any way, but no, if, if we ever had questions for Louie or wanted some of his time, like he's there, he's in the room. It's just that generally, you know, we story follow the storylines that are compelling and uh, Louis has not been terribly compelling for the right reasons for his years here in Vancouver. So no, he's there, he's in the room, but he just he doesn't get interviewed an awful lot. Yeah, Louis is I, I'm, Louis is available. He stands in there. I've had multiple like ten minute conversations with him, and I've tried to. He's guarded. At the end of the day, he's guarded. Right, like that's the other thing. Louis at no point has been like blasting the organization for making him a help. Like he's been a good soldier in the media, except that one time in Sweden. Right, like right. yes, he yep. he, ha- he just ha- it's not just that he doesn't talk; it's that he doesn't make waves when he does. Right. And so he's guarded, he's careful, um, he's always available. Like, he does everything you could ask for from a media perspective in terms of being available, being willing to talk, answering questions, taking the time. And, you know, the fact that he's guarded, I think, makes sense considering how this has gone for him. And, you know, we'll, we'll see. I'm sure, I'm sure he'll be rolled out a little more as he approaches game 1,000. let me just say though this quickly like you know you've got your job writing sort of features and things my job is a little bit more on the day-to-day you know the the minutiae of covering that hockey club like there's a human element to this too like how many times 
like, I think I'm a pretty reasonable guy in my job and outside of the job too. But like, how many times can you go and whack a guy over the head for his lack of production? He knows it. We know it, right? Like, you just, there are better stories in that locker room. And so I, I just don't have it in me. Like, after every game, like, why didn't you score? You know, like, it's just, that's not going to happen. So yep. uh, that's sort of where I come from when it comes to Louie. I give him his space. If he does something, yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk to him. And if it goes a while where he hasn't done something, then maybe it is time to sort of go back down that path. But, you know, that's kind of my approach to it is, like, he knows he hasn't come anywhere close and can never, you know, truly earn the money that he made. But that's not his fault. That contract was put in front of him. You'd have signed it. I'd have signed it. I never begrudge a player for what he has been able to get from a hockey club if that offer is made and put in front of him. So that's just where we are. But he knows in his hard hearts that he's never going to come close to living up to that contract. And, and so, yeah, there's some personal pride on his side. And I just think there's a human element. Like he's just, you know, like what do people want? I suck. Like, you know, it's it's not going to happen. No, I, there's some things though that like, you know, and this is honestly a relic for me listening to the podcast, to be totally honest with you, where like, I keep in the back of my mind that Louis is a big story, regardless of how on the back burner he seems to be day to day. And so I try and talk to him about once a month. Like I make a point of asking for Louis and just trying to chat with him, just trying to keep up with him. Um, and I, and I make a point of tweeting every time he's a healthy scratch, right? Like I have a healthy scratch counter that I run for Louis and every time he's a healthy scratch, I tweet it because it should matter that the guy who makes the most on this team, like with the highest cap hit is scratched, right? Like that should Absolutely. matter. Absolutely. And, and so I make a point of, of covering him in a certain way because of his stature and the gap between his, you know, financial stature and his, and his contributions. Um, but you know, I, I mean, he's a, he's a good guy. He's a, like, he's a stand up guy in my experience dealing with him from a media player relationship and you know, there's there's only like I I try and keep up with him, but I'm not I'm not going in there to you know <laughs> to blast him every day. Like right. I just want to sort of I try and get a read basically on how frustrated he seems on a regular basis. And you know, when he's playing well, it's a story too. Like when he had that run of empty net goals, like that was hilarious. Uh, yep. I talked to him a bunch during that. So um, you know, one thing one thing to note about Louis though, the guys are always really happy for him. Right, like his teammates are always really happy for him when things go well, uh, especially the Swedes. So, um, you know, I, I, I think, look, I think he's a hardworking guy. I just don't think it's worked out, and it is a tough one to cover. You're right because of the gap between his, you know, impact in terms of the in terms of the books, uh, his impact on the ice, which has been minimal, and you know what that means for this team going forward, combined with his low key personality, it is challenging in a lot of ways to cover. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. Jeffrey B. Um, given the Canucks' newfound lack of right-wing depth and Travis's distrust of Jake Vertanen to play top six minutes generally or in a matchup role, what are the chances we see Pod Colson in the top six in his first NHL season? Um, he adds that it seems he's generally projected to be a bottom six guy, but there's a glut of solid bottom sixers with lower upside in McEwen, Howerluck, and Louie, and someone who hasn't proven they can handle a top six role, at least in matchups in Vertanen. Uh, barring the acquisition of another legit top six right wing, perhaps for a second round pick in John Madden, or Tyler Madden, excuse me. Uh, could these dynamic force could these dynamics force Pod Colson into a top six role when he first arrives in the NHL on either Horvat or Pedersen's wing? And how well equipped would he be to potentially handle that role in his first NHL season? It's a mouthful. Yeah, but I, I think absolutely it's possible. Like who knows? And we're talking about the season beyond this one. Like there's still some talks yes. that just with the way the schedule and the calendar are working here that he could be done in the K and could come over here if the Canucks are still playing. But if we take this coming season, whatever it looks like out of the equation, his first full season in the National Hockey League, you know, is Tanner Pearson still here? Uh, is there a hole that has to be filled uh, on, or how many holes, I guess, uh, you know, in the top six are we considering? So yeah, I, I think absolutely uh, there is a possibility. I think he would be a better fit stylistically uh, with Bohorvat. Like I don't see him playing on Elias Pettersson's wing but again who knows uh, who's filling that spot and that opportunity but no I'm excited the guy's like a top 10 pick in the draft I know it's been a, a tough go for him but uh, my sense is that when he gets over here uh, the Canucks are going to give him every opportunity to be the player that they hope he he can be and that they're going to need him to be especially uh, you know on an entry-level contract once Pettersson and Hughes have have their extensions so yeah I think there's an opportunity for him to get a chance in the top six yeah, I, I'm going to go a little cooler than that. I think, you know, he's he's played a pretty limited role this season in the KHL. I think your ideal is going to be to break him in as like a fourth line grinding winger playing 10 minutes a night and maybe like second power play net front guy, um, maybe on the half wall if his shot and, and playmaking plays at that level um, and sort of ramp him up either over the course of his first season so that maybe toward the end, He's in your top six or, or maybe over multiple years. But I think it makes sense to, you know, like it's the Bo Horvat model. You know what I mean? Like play Bo Horvat. Bo Horvat was a fourth line center for his first year entirely. And I think that level of predictability, um, you know, lower sort of leverage minutes. Uh, I think that helps a guy get used to the routine and, and the rhythms and settle in. And, you know, in Pod Colson's case, making sure that a prospect with that type of upside is developed in a you know conscious slow way put in a position to succeed I think matters I think it matters to the Canucks I think they spend a lot of time thinking about it especially Travis Green um, in terms of where he slots his young players in the lineup and and so I would expect him not to get a significant top six look in his first season I think it'll be uh, lower and slower than that <sighs> I guess I, I wish I knew who would be the fourth line center <laughs> right, right. You know that that would change the conversation for me a little bit, but we'll see. I, I guess we'll, there's only one way to find out, and that is uh, to get him over here and get him playing in the National Hockey League. Uh, Izzy's C uh, from Birmingham, UK. Here, will next season's games be worth watching at 3 a.m. in the morning? Yeah, it's hockey, man. 
Of course. <laughs> of course. Nothing better than 3 a.m. hockey. I miss that. I don't know when I've ever experienced it, but I miss it. At the Olympics. That, I've experienced begs, it during the Olympics. Right. That takes me back to Sochi and the gold medal game. And it begs the question, do you wake up for 3 a.m. hockey or do you stay up for 3 a.m. hockey? Stay up for 3 a.m. hockey. Anything before 5 a.m. you stay up for. That's my opinion. And, you know, we've said this in different forms on the podcast before. Regardless what the team as a whole looks like, you got Pedersen, you got Hughes in the lineup. Like, it's going to be exciting to watch those guys just continue to develop and do what they do. So, yeah, I'm going to say it's worth the investment of your time, even at 3 in the morning. And we appreciate the support from the UK uh, for the VanCast. Thanks for that question. All right, from Edward H., do you foresee a cap dump trade with a cap-rich team like Detroit or Ottawa moments before camp opens? And what would those deals possibly look like? Or has this ship sailed? I don't think it sailed. I think Steve Eisman was on the record. He made the deal with the Rangers for Mark Stahl and said he was certainly open to more of those types of contracts. And I don't think anything really has changed in the flexibility of a team like the Red Wings. I know a lot of people look at Ottawa uh, I'm not sure that the Sens want to be taking on a whole lot more uh, at this stage, but you know we'll see, I suppose. But yeah, I, I think that there is going to be, you know, there's going to be some Thomas Vanek's out there that sign just ahead of a training camp, and some team might be getting a pretty good bargain there. And I still get that, like Tampa is nowhere close to um, done yet. Like there's still a ton of work for a team like Tampa. Uh, to be cap, cap compliant. And I think that there are going to still be some deals to be had around the National Hockey League. So, you know, I, I think right now, obviously in a holding pattern, waiting for uh, some indication of when, right? Like get some dates, uh, get a date for the start of the season, start a training camp, you know, and that might lubricate the wheel of motion around the National Hockey League. But I, I do anticipate that we'll see some moves ahead of training camp. Yeah, I think so too. I don't think we're going to be able to. I don't think we're going to see a move though where the Canucks clear out significant salary. Right. Like I, no, I, I do don't... think, I do think that ship has sailed, and and partly for reasons that you've outlined, right? Like if if Tampa and the New York Islanders need to shed salary yet, then the price of shedding salary, considering those teams are going to be looking to move really good pieces, probably right. Like you know, your Devin Taves, your. Tyler Johnson, Alex Kalorn, maybe Andres Palat class of player, like then what do you need to add to a potential deal for a team taking on a Jordy Ben or a Brandon Sutter, right? Like, cause you have to think about it as opportunity cost from the perspective of the team taking on those salaries. Like we can do this with our cap space or we can do that. What future asset attached to it nets us more value and the value of that is going to be sky high in a league where there's very, very little cap space to go around. So I just think the costs are going to be prohibitive and well outside of what the Canucks are willing to stomach. All right, we jump back in. This one's from Chris C. Having Seattle in the league is going to help reduce the Canucks' travel. How many wins do you think this might translate to? I'm going to say that it's not going to make much of a difference. It's great. Yep. Like, trust me. Like I am excited to have a geographic rival after 50 years, long overdue, really excited, like what the Kraken are doing and the way that they're doing it and building out their staff. And, you know, at some point they'll get a coach, I imagine. But like, I, I just, I, I'm kind of keeping close tabs on sort of the, the lab that they've got going and, and really curious about, uh, you know, this big front office machine that they're building and can that translate into wins and the way that they're going about it. But the travel part... I think what it's going to do is, like, 
yeah, two quick trips down and back to Seattle. They're in the division. But essentially, all it's going to do is reduce a game in a place like Colorado or a game in Minnesota. And generally, the Canucks don't do one-offs to those places. They would go, like when COVID hit, they were going Arizona, Colorado, right? So yep. what all you're doing with Seattle coming in, you're eliminating the Arizona to Colorado portion of the travel. Like you're still going to have to go to some of these cities, Minnesota to Chicago. Like, you know, so I I don't think it's as great in terms of the uh, savings and the wear and tear as maybe people think just because when you look at a map of where Seattle is, yeah, those trips are going to be great. But in the big picture, I don't think it's going to lead to uh, a lot more in the way of tangible victories and points in the standings. So two add-ons to that point. One is I think where it could pay real dividends is if you ever get like a first-round playoff series or a second-round yes. playoff series between the two clubs um, because that's where that's where the travel miles really rack up is if you go on a deep playoff run and you face, for example, Chicago in the first round and Nashville in the second round, like that's a lot of miles before you even get to the conference final, uh, you know, to use the 2011 sort of path. Um, as an analogy, like if you can reduce one of those to an hour flight to Seattle, like, man, that makes a difference when you go through that type of meat grinder. The second thing is, you know, I I worked in Florida, right? Which is a team that's sort of off on an island with one other team nearby, which is a similar situation that will be replicated by Vancouver and Seattle when they exist together. And one thing that teams in those situations tend to get a fair bit of is, is traveling teams coming through and playing back-to-backs uh, in those two cities. And I'm curious to see, like, the Canucks get some back-to-backs where a team's gone Alberta to Vancouver, but I-, I feel like there's not a ton of them. There's maybe, like, five or six a-, a year. I wonder if that number could be enhanced quite considerably once East Coast teams are, you know, making a pit stop in the Northwest. Uh, I think that will happen, and I think that's where maybe the Canucks get an extra win or two a season is is facing more teams on the second leg of back-to-back games or even the first leg of back-to-back games and deciding to start their goaltender or their backup goaltender um, once Seattle comes into the league. That's the impact that I'm, I'm sort of watching for as, as potentially more impactful. All right. From Corey H., what do the Canucks uh, – what do you think the Canucks will have to do to get back to the playoffs? Oh, I mean, they're going to need internal growth, obviously, from Pedersen and Hughes and a bounce back season from Besser. But we saw like that core group that did the damage in the playoffs is still here for the most part. The the skaters, uh, you know, you pointed out in an earlier pod, obviously Markstrom was a a huge part of the core. uh, But among the skaters, those same guys that they leaned on and the guys that performed in the playoffs, they're here. That's the exciting part. It's that they haven't filled out the roster. So, you know, I go back to COVID. When the play was halted, they were a bubble team. They had 13 games remaining, and there were no guarantees. There were no guarantees they were getting into a 16-team tournament. But what the Canucks did well, once they were included in a 24-team tournament, then, you know, they took advantage. And full credit to them, and it was fun, and it was great to have hockey that meant something again. But there were no guarantees that they were going to be a conventional playoff team uh, when the season was halted when it was back in March. So, uh, you know, they got to tighten up defensively. They did some of that in the bubble, but we also saw that a team like Vegas, uh, you know, had their way with the Canucks when it came to uh, the way the game was played and, and shots and those types of things. So, you know, that's the issue is 
you know, can Thatcher Demko and Braden Holpe come anywhere close to giving the Canucks the kind of goaltending that Jacob Markstrom did because Markstrom bailed this team out on so many nights last season. And even with that kind of goaltending, all they were through 69 games was a bubble team. And so uh, I would say that they got to tighten things up defensively. Hopefully Nate Schmidt will help them play a little more, you know, up ice as opposed to playing in their own end and defending. But, you know, they still have work to do. They got work to do and... They got to find a way to, you know, can they get anything more? Can they squeeze anything more out of their bottom six forward group? That was a massive issue in the playoffs. I'm not sure. In fact, I, you know, I, I have my doubts. So those are some of the, we're talking about elections these days and the pathways to victory. You know, those are a few of the things that I would question heading into a new season, whenever it begins. Can they squeeze anything more out of the bottom six? Are they any better defensively than they were last season? And, you know, can this goaltending come anywhere close to replicating what Jacob Markstrom did while all those top players continue to develop and perform like they did in the bubble? Yep. Dead on. I think the goaltending is going to be a key part here. And remember, over the last three regular seasons, like Jonathan Quick is 36th in save percentage among 39 goaltenders that have played at least 5,000 minutes in the regular season over the last three years. Like... There are those in the round, around the game who sort of see him as, you know, a, a diminished uh, sort of player as, a, as just as a result of time and age. And, you know, is there a chance that he's like Jonathan Quick type quality for the Canucks? Like there is. And in that case, Demko is going to face a larger burden. And we still don't really know based on his track record, what Demko is like, we think he's, or sorry, I think we can say with confidence that he's an NHL goaltender of some magnitude, but whether he's Peter Budai or Darcy Kemper, like, I don't know. And you know, we, the more data points we get, I think there's certainly a lot of signs that he could hit the high end of his projection, but can he hit it as a workhorse starter? Can he hit it in the event that Braden Holtby doesn't have the type of bounce back season the Canucks will need? Like, those are big questions. And it'll go an awful long way in deciding where this team gets to uh, in the 2021 year, league year, um, you know, whenever hockey does, in fact, return. All right. An amazing array of questions. I think we got time for two more. So I've got one. Uh, we'll finish with uh, one that uh, jumps out at you. And... Again, we thank everybody for the submissions when I saw the the sheer volume. I knew that we weren't going to be able to get to them all. So uh, we'll put some of them in reserve. And while these games aren't being played these days, hopefully we can double back and and maybe do a second mailbag edition of uh, the VanCast because the interest seemed to be there. Uh, Ariel M., when will the Tyler Mott in the top six hype train start? Oh, boy. When I mean, like, you know, I don't... Boy, I don't think it will. I don't think it will, right? I, I was going to say when he gets selected by Seattle uh, in the expansion <laughs> draft. Yeah, like, the you know, I like Tyler Maude as a player a fair bit, like a lot more than most analytics guys do. Um, but, you know, he's got the occasional shot with Horvat or whomever. Um, you know, he just doesn't produce enough. Like, he played with really skilled players in college, right? He played on the line with Kyle Connor. Winnipeg Jets 30 goal scorer and JT Comfer really yeah, good top CCM nine line. forward. Yeah. For, uh, for the Colorado avalanche. And, um, you know, like he, he's complimented skill players at a lower level. Uh, we haven't seen him do it effectively at the NHL level. Um, could it happen? Like, could he be, 
you know, a Vancouver answer to Zach Hyman or something like maybe, but um, <laughs> you know, the early returns on that haven't been great. And so I don't, I don't know. I think he'd have to have, I think he'd have to have a real, really good run to, to begin to build any real buzz for that type of deployment. Um, All right. Finish up strong here. What have we got? We'll do the. All right. Given the emergence, this is from Anita L. Thank you, Anita, for the question. Given the emergence of Haskinen, and it is Haskinen, by the way, and Makar, do you think EP40 would go first in a 2017 redraft? And then second part of the question is Hughes, Makar, Haskinen, Dahlin. Which top young D-man would you choose to be on your team and why? This is a tricky one. This is a tricky one. It is. I mean, when you think of the premium pieces, you know, a a center, like a legit top, top play-driving center or defenseman that basically can do it all at the age of 20. uh, (laughs) You can't go wrong. No. but But there is a right answer. It's Elias Pettersson. Uh, I don't yeah. have to think about it that hard. Okay. I really don't. I really don't. I think I think I think Haskinen I think Haskinen's gonna win a Norris trophy one day. Uh but I think Elias Pettersson is twenty one and a top ten centerman in hockey. Um, you know, with upside to get even even higher up that list. Um that's an insane list, right? Like to crack that top yeah. five, you have to win a major award, basically, right? Like you have to be an insane player but Pedersen is and for me it's Pedersen with a bullet I take him every day over Makar I think about it for a second when it comes to Haskinen but for me Elias Pedersen is just a look a more dynamic offensive player he's a center harder to find uh Elias Pedersen number one overall yeah and the second part of the question of which of those young guys I mean I'd take them all if I could uh yeah like I just you know, and and you had like such good fortune of seeing a heavy dose of Haskin and McCarr Hughes in the bubble. Yeah, um, it was awesome. You know, and and Rasmus Dahlin first overall. You know, playing in Buffalo, like I don't think we've even scratched the surface with this guy no. yet, right? He's and incredible. So, yeah, that's it. Like I, I don't think he gets his due, partly because of where he's playing right now and just the cycle. You know, and hopefully someday the Sabres can surround him with some decent players that will allow him to to truly flourish. But, you know, like, there's just the, the few times, and I've only seen Haskin in a couple times, but even going back to his rookie season, like, he's mesmerizing the way he skates. Like, Quinn Hughes does incredible things on his skates, but I just find, like, Haskin looks like he's floating out there. And when I say floating, I don't mean standing at center ice with a stick in the air waiting for, you know, breakaway passes. He truly looks like he's levitating. Like it, it, there's sort of this optical illusion in the way that this guy gets around the ice. And I just, I can't get enough of that. So, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's a Vancouver podcast. Uh, Maybe some Homerism. Sure. Keep Hughes. (laughs) Keep Hughes on the Canuck. I'll take Quinn Hughes. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, fair. I think that's reasonable. I, I, I will take Haskinen. Um, I've, I, I've never seen a young defenseman make the game look so easy. Like, it's crazy how easy he makes the game look. He is locked down already. Like, he's 21, and he is a lockdown defensive defender. I mean, he you know, for me, for me, Haskinen is, like, I mean, he is already Mr. Perfect, right? Like, there's nothing he doesn't do that 
that seems like everything he does seems perfect. Um, that said, he's a year older than Quinn Hughes. So, um, you know, reserve the right to, uh, to come back yeah. to this one, to revisit this one. But, uh, because you know, I've, ne- I've, I've never seen a player, uh, think and play the game like Quinn Hughes does. But for me, Haskinen by like the smallest, smallest margin over Hughes, um, it would be my pick between those four. Uh, but you're right. You can't go wrong with either. They are all absolutely incredible and so fun to watch. Speaking of guys that have been fun to watch throughout their career, Patrick Kane joins Mark Lazarus and Scott Powers on Laz and Powers this week at the Athletics. So if you want to hear from one of the greats in the National Hockey League and you're looking for podcast alternatives, uh, check out Patrick Kane on Laz and Powers. Uh, also check out our comment section for each podcast episode at the Athletic app. Rate and subscribe the VanCast on Apple. And don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, subscribe now and save. Go to theathletic.com slash VanCast. You can receive an all-access subscription for just $1.25 Canadian a week. All right, as we finish things up, I uh, just want to take a moment here because this was DM'd to me this morning. It kind of came out of the blue and it stuck with me and I just want to share it with our listeners and I, I have the blessing of the guy who sent it to me and he's a member of Canucks Twitter. And he wrote, I think enough time has passed to reach out and let you know that when Botch passed, I was in real trouble with substance misuse myself. I was in a very, very dark place. I came close to dying more than once and spent a lot of time in hospital. Seeing the pain that Botch's family went through, especially the children that he left behind, inspired me to seek help. It took some time to get there, but I put my life on hold. I went to rehab for six weeks. I've been clean ever since, managed to get it together, and moved my family back to Vancouver. I'm not sure why I felt compelled to tell you this, and I'm not sure why I chose today, but I did really want to let you know that something positive came out of all this. My two-and-a-half-year-old daughter now has her father back. I have my life back. Please pass my message of hope along to anyone who needs to hear it. Aw. Wow. Yeah. So pretty heavy, but, uh, you know, we, we... Miss Botch, obviously, and you hope that there was some light in the darkness of his passing. So I just wanted to uh, send that out to anybody else that may be going through tough times as well. It's part of the Canucks uh, family, our VanCast listenership as well. So uh, we'll uh, finish with that. And we, again, thank yeah. absolutely everybody that filled the uh, in-basket. Uh, incredible questions. So uh, uh, I nice think next work. Time, next time we're going to have to do... Like, we'll, we'll set this up. We'll do, like, mailbag week. Now that we know the level of interest, I think we do mailbag week and we'll split it into two parts so that we can get to more of the questions. But thanks to everybody who took a moment and responded. Like, the VIPs come correct every time. It's amazing. It's what makes it so fun to be back in this market. Thank you to everybody who took a moment and responded. And, and thank you, too, to the gentleman who DM'd you on Twitter and shared that story. That is exceptionally moving. All right, well, we were overdue for a mailbag. We were overdue for a lunch. We can check both those <laughs> off our list here. It's been a very, very productive week for us. And Indeed. Uh, again, the, the thanks goes to the VIPs. For Grant, it's J-Pat. Uh, we'll catch up with you sometime next week with another edition of the VanCast here at The Athletic and TheAthletic.com.